Hi, everyone. I'm attorney Donna DiMaggio Berger, and this is Take It to the Board, where we speak condo and HOA. Today, I'm going to be talking with my partner, Joy Mattingly. Joy oversees Becker's collection and foreclosure practice. Joy is an experienced litigator who represents all types of associations to collect the delinquent assessments needed to fund the community's essential services. She's a graduate of the University of Florida's Levin School of Law and clerked for Judge Mark E. Polin at Florida's 4th District Court of Appeals. Joy, welcome to Take It to the Board. Thank you, Donna. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here too, particularly because there's so much chatter right now in Florida on your practice area, which is collections and foreclosures. We are hearing a lot about what the legislature is going to do. Obviously, they, they concluded their session and they did not pass any of the safety reform bills we anticipated, but we do know they may address that in a special session. And we know if they don't do it in a special session, they will certainly do it in the 2023 session, which by the way, is not an election year. So we'll probably see something get done in 20. 23. But again, tied to all of these bills is the chatter of whether or not people can afford them and whether or not all of these changes with regard to reserve funding and periodic engineering and other operations for associations, particularly multifamily buildings, is it going to price some people out of the community? And that's where a group like yours comes in. What do you think as somebody who heads a statewide practice collections and foreclosures when you are reading about what's going on in Tallahassee and what's likely to come down the pike? Well, Donna, you know, it's a really difficult issue when you're looking at all those different things that associations have to consider when they are going to pass these types of assessments, some of them which are going to be quite large. And I think the key and the one thing that everyone has to keep in mind is that the most important thing is the safety of your building. You have to pass assessments that are going to allow you to maintain the integrity and the safety of your building for the entire community. And you can't necessarily make those decisions based on whether or not the people that live there are all going to be able to afford it. With that being said, I think that this is a great opportunity to remind clients that it's very important that they fund their building reserves over time rather than waiving those reserves and the requirement to fund them because, you know, eventually those bills are going to come due and the piper is going to have to be paid, as it were. And so I think this is a great opportunity for us to talk to associations about how they need to make sure that their reserves are properly funded. And I think it's also important that they look at the reserves that are unfunded if they've been that way for a large number of years and be prepared to pass those special assessments that are going to allow them to maintain the integrity of their buildings. Separately, one of the things that's happening in Florida right now is massive increase in sales of properties, particularly properties that are located um, on the ocean. And pretty much anywhere in Florida, you're seeing a large rise in value that people are getting for their homes. And so if you're one of those people who's concerned about being able to afford those assessments that may need to be passed in your community, it might be time for you to reevaluate your living situation when you're able to actually get top dollar for the home that you're selling. So those are things to, to think about, yeah. you know, and be prepared for. We don't know what's going to happen, but I do think the most important thing to be thinking about is making sure that your building is sound, safe, and that you're doing what you need to, to make sure that you have the money to, you know, keep that happening. We've had people that have literally aged in place. So they may have bought these coastal condominium units back in the 70s when they were in their 30s or 40s. And now decades later, these are people um, on fixed incomes. And in some cases, they really 
perhaps it's no longer a cost-effective choice for them to live. But as you said, Joy, we're in the midst of a really high market right now. Um, people are getting top dollar. I think the other point you made is, is excellent. Listen, it was never a popularity game to serve on these boards, but that is never more true than now <laughs> with all of the deferred maintenance coming due and, and, and the tough decisions. If you're sitting on the board and you're hoping to remain popular, probably get off the board and be popular or stay on the board and, and do the right thing. I wanted to ask you, I, I don't even know if our clients always know exactly the makings, the, the mechanics of your department. I know you utilize a team's approach. Tell me a little bit about like, how many teams, who's on the team, and, and what are the roles of those team members? Sure. So our clients really benefit from a team approach because they have different people addressing different issues for them. But with the collections foreclosure practice, every client is assigned to a attorney who handles their matters, a paralegal who assists the attorney in handling those matters. And then the paralegals themselves have an assistant who handles administrative issues um, so that we can really help the client, whether it's communicating with their owners, whether it's, you know, getting their um, pleadings and their, their mailings out in a timely manner. So the client also knows that they can talk to any one of those people in the department that, you know, will enable them to move their case forward and knows that they have a team working for them rather than just one person. So it also allows us to really make sure that, you know, if someone's out for the day or, you know, there's a, there's some sort of interruption from that person's workflow that someone else can cover for them because the department in general is made up of these types of individuals who are used to doing this type of work and, and can cover for one another. So it's really all about making sure that the client is completely has you know a complete team at their at their disposal at all times. Who would the board member or manager typically reach out to? The paralegal or the attorney handling the file? It depends on what they're looking for. If they're looking for legal advice on the file, then the attorney is the person to reach out to because they're the one who's going to be able to help them with that legal strategy and answering those questions. If it's more of a question of where are we at in the file and what's happening or letting our office know that the owners contacted them, maybe wants a payoff letter, that would be the paralegal. So it just depends. But a lot of our clients will reach out to one of us and if it needs to be directed to another person, that's very easily done. And the client's very comfortable with the team that they've been assigned because pretty much anybody could answer and help them with what it is that they need help with. So if it's a, a delinquent owner, let's say, who's trying to contact the firm to pay off or to, to question what is owed, where is that person routed, Joy? We have um, a dedicated email address, actually, where someone can send in a payoff request, but typically they'll just call the front desk. We have a, a receptionist and they will tell them what they're looking for and they would be directed to the paralegal on the file so they can request that payoff. And then the, pay, the paralegal will go through the process of getting the updated figures and preparing that payoff letter for the owner. Are there any legal requirements attached to communications with the debtors? There are. As a debt collector, which would be anyone who's essentially collecting the debt of someone else, you have to make sure that the debtor knows that when you first communicate with them, that they have a 30-day, it's actually a 35-day time period now in which to dispute the debt that you are telling them is owed. There's a number of things that they can request in terms of of who is the creditor, who is this debt at owed to, as well as maybe some backup documentation for that debt. So that's something that we have to be very aware of. And then also pretty much anytime you talk to a debtor, 
you need to make sure that they know that they're communicating with the debt collector, which is why sometimes when you call our office, you get that language went before you actually speak to someone just so that they are aware that we are a debt collector and we're collecting information to be used for that purpose. I've heard that recording. I've yes. heard that recording. <laughs> <laughs> so, so some people, and, and I, and I'm assuming this irritates you somewhat. Some people see the collection practice as a form driven practice. Okay. Gets on a conveyor belt, away it goes. It's boring. It's form driven. How accurate is that? You know, there is always some truth to comments that we don't love or to stereotypes, let's say. So the reality is, is that Florida has a very statutorily prescribed method of collections, right? So every single owner is supposed to receive certain things. So obviously it makes sense to create forms that you can then edit and use when you are sending owners communications, but there is so much more that goes into it. Obviously, for every single communication coming from our office, we have to go through a process of ensuring that the information is correct, that the amount that we're seeking actually matches the amount that the association has told us is owed. So that would be your pre-suit collection notices, you know, before we actually file a lawsuit. Then when we file a lawsuit, there are a multitude of things that could need to be done. Sometimes, you know, we have owners that are out of the country and have to be served in different ways. Sometimes we have owners who are deceased and they, you know, that also presents its own set of problems. So anytime you have a certain set of steps that you have to take for every single file that you handle, of course, you're going to try to maximize your efficiency by having forms that you can use. But it's so much more complicated based on what it is that you're seeking and what you're trying to do. And there's also the approach that we take, which is a very fact-specific approach. Even though a lot of files are the same, you always have to be on guard and looking for those situations that are outside of the box or maybe have a, a fact that distinguishes this file from just your routine file. If you're just looking at it as a form-driven practice, there are a million and one ways to make a mistake. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Joy, you can't this this practice is not one that you can just get on autopilot. You've got to be on the lookout for any potential surprises in these files. Absolutely. And they can arise from the very beginning of the file until the middle to the end. So you really have to be paying attention to detail and to make sure that you're not just on autopilot, as you said. So walk us through the steps of an average, let's say, condominium association collection file. It starts with the ledger, correct? That's correct. And now there's actually a new requirement. It was adopted last year by the Florida legislature, requires all associations to send what's called a notice of late assessment that provides the owner with 30 days to pay prior to the account being sent to our office. So that's actually the first step along with the ledger that needs to be sent to our office. So these days when we get a ledger from a client requesting that we open a file, we have to also request that notice of late assessment that should have been sent to the owner. The penalty for not sending that is pretty onerous. Basically, the association cannot recover legal fees from a subsequent collection action, whereas they would normally be able to. So we have to make sure that that's been done so our client then are able to collect legal fees at the end of the case or during the course of the collection or foreclosure action. So the, the ledger sent to our office along with that notice of late assessment that was sent and assuming all of that is correct, then our first step is sending out the first of two statutorily required demand letters 
First one is a notice of intent to lien letter. It provides the owner with 45 days to pay prior to the lien being recorded. So that's for condos, co-ops, and homeowners associations. Then the second letter, assuming the owner doesn't pay, that we send is a notice of intent to foreclose letter. And it's sent along with a copy of the claim of lien that we've prepared and recorded. That letter gives the owner 45 days to pay prior to us proceeding with the foreclosure action. Interestingly enough, the 45-day notice of intent to foreclose letter is not required for cooperatives, although we do tend to treat cooperatives the same just to make sure that we are covering all of our bases and to prevent having to face that argument in court, honestly, because a lot of attorneys or owners don't necessarily know that. So after we send those two letters and record the claim of lien, then if the owner doesn't pay, the association needs to make a determination as to whether or not it wants to foreclose. So usually at that point, we have a conversation with the client as to whether or not they want to proceed. And that can be as simple as them simply authorizing us to proceed. And sometimes they have additional questions just to make sure they know what's going to happen. And once they decide that they want to foreclose, we file the foreclosure complaint. It's a two-count complaint, typically, um, one for a foreclosure judgment and one count for a money judgment. And then we would proceed with it as we would most lawsuits. When you file a lawsuit, you have to serve a defendant, all of the defendants, with a copy of the summons and the complaint. They have a specific amount of time to answer. If they don't file an answer, you can get a default against them, which prevents them from contesting the merits of the case. And then you would proceed to summary judgment. Most of our cases resolve in that manner, but there's a number of things that can happen during the course of the foreclosure lawsuit that could make that more complicated or add additional steps. Does it ever make sense for an association to sort of bluff and say, I'm just going to go through the demand and threaten the lien or even record the lien, but never proceed to foreclose? It makes sense in that if you don't do anything, then nothing is going to happen. So if you don't even send a notice of late assessment, if you don't even send that initial notice of intent to lien letter, and possibly even the next letter, the notice of intent to foreclose, nothing is going to happen. Why would an owner start to pay you just randomly if you hadn't taken any action at all? So it it does make sense. I wouldn't necessarily call it a bluff. I would just say it puts you in the position to be able to proceed if the owner doesn't pay and you can make the determination at the point where you're at the readiness for foreclosure. It doesn't mean you have to foreclose, but if you don't do anything, then nothing's going to change. So I I certainly recommend to clients that they start a collections action because the owner needs to be put on notice. And we really do receive a lot of payments and resolutions of these files before we have to proceed to foreclosure. And the reason is, is that once an attorney gets involved, they realize it's serious. We need to deal with this. And so a lot of our cases are resolved before we even need to file a foreclosure. And I will tell you, Joy, as corporate counsel, I will tell my boards if they pose the question to me, yes, you have a fiduciary duty to collect assessments from everyone. They can't just look the other way and say, well, this is, we just don't want to collect this. That's one of their main duties as a board is to collect the assessments that are needed to fund the the services in the community. 
So absolutely, that, that is yeah. one thing I don't think they have the option to just say, well, we're not going to do anything. Correct. You mentioned early on about, about the ledger. You know, it's garbage in, garbage out, correct? If somebody, if you get a ledger from, let's say, a board that is either self-managed or from a management company or a manager that's incorrect, and now you've gone down this path, and let's say you've even gotten to the point where you're filing a foreclosure action, what happens then when you find out that the figures on that ledger were incorrect, or perhaps they've added fines or, or interest or late fees that they should not have on that ledger? So fortunately, we typically can make those determinations before we get too far down the road. One of our main jobs is to look at a ledger when we receive it and make sure that it makes sense. If there are items on the ledger that did not have any sort of backup, then we request that backup. So the key for us is making sure we handle those types of situations prior to really proceeding with that lawsuit or even the collections action. Now, that being said, sometimes there are mistakes that are made on ledgers that are not catchable, let's say, for a number of reasons. And if we find out that that's happened, at that point, we have to reevaluate the amounts that we've demanded from the owner. And sometimes it means the association has to settle a case and are responsible for either legal fees um, or aren't going to recover their own legal fees. So we really make every effort from the beginning to make sure that we have a very good record of what that account has looked like before it came into our office. And I will tell you that most associations, certainly ones that you know we deal with on a routine basis, they do have very good records and they make sure that what they're giving us is actually correct. Joy, you told me before that I, I think 90% or more of association foreclosures are uncontested, meaning the owner's not fighting back, not coming up with some reason why they didn't pay for the assessment. But for the contested cases, what are the claims that owners make to contest the association foreclosure? There really aren't very many valid defenses that an owner can raise to a foreclosure. Their liability is founded on their ownership of that property and whether or not the association properly adopted those assessments. So what I just said is one of the biggest defenses that we face, which is that the association improperly adopted the assessment. Typically, this comes into play with a special assessment because you do have to go through some special steps to adopt a special assessment. And an owner can rate whether it's, you know, the special assessment was adopted for an improper purpose or the special assessment was not properly noticed, the meeting at which it was passed was not properly noticed. Those are some big special defenses that we can face. Other defenses tend to relate to the board's or the association's behavior in the community. So sometimes it's the association hasn't been maintaining the common elements. That's not actually a valid defense to a foreclosure, but owners raise it. Another is that the association perhaps didn't maintain the common elements and it damaged an owner's property. And that usually arises in the context of, let's say, a condominium where maybe there was a roof leak that damaged someone's unit because the association didn't properly deal with it. In those situations, we typically try to work out some sort of settlement or have that damage addressed, but it, it doesn't negate an owner's liability to pay. It just means there might be some set off in terms of the amounts that they owe. One of the biggest defenses that I haven't actually seen a lot of it, but it's something that I want to warn associations about because I do think it can become a huge problem is the defense of a rejection of payment. 
So a lot of associations, when they turn accounts over to us for collections, they'll have their management companies put a hold or a stop on someone's account. That means that they won't accept payments that an owner is sending in via ACH or automatic payments. That is the biggest liability for the association that I can truly think of because I understand why they do it. They're, they think that if they accept a payment, that the owner is then going to be able to say that they paid in full or maybe they, they'll be able to get around some of the legal fees or the interest. But the statutes actually require payments to be applied in a specific way. And that protects the association from an owner making those arguments. And there's actually case law directly on point regarding rejection of payments and pointing to the statutory application of payment language that says that if an association rejects payments, then they may not be able to be successful in that lawsuit. I would point that out because I don't want associations to shoot themselves in the foot because they're concerned about what an owner might say. So always accept all of the payments that an owner sends you. If the account is in collections with your law firm, then let the attorney know that you received a payment so that way they're aware, but you never want to reject those payments. And then sometimes, you know, we have these random defenses of estoppel or waiver because the association, they think they're being persecuted by the association or they're not treating them the same. Sometimes we'll see selective enforcement defenses stating that other owners are delinquent and they didn't go after that owner. And those defenses are pretty easy to overcome because, again, they're really not defenses to a foreclosure action. But it is important that the association treats all of its owners the same. So, you know, having a a policy in place that will make sure that everyone's treated the same. But in reality, it's, it's very difficult to defend a foreclosure, an association foreclosure, which is why most of them are either uncontested or we settle them at some point during the case, whether through a payment plan or the owner agreeing to a consent judgment. I'm sure you've heard this argument. I've heard this before. And owners live there for years. Okay. The the association changes management companies. The owner doesn't get a coupon. You know, so that company uses a coupon booklet. You've lived there for years. You suddenly think that there's going to stop charging you assessments. I mean, and that's the defense that I didn't get a, a coupon, so I didn't pay. I mean, that there has to be some requirements for owners to be proactive Particularly, I could see if you were new, but if you've lived there for years and just suddenly you didn't get a coupon, that does not mean you can stop suddenly stop paying your monthly maintenance or your quarterly maintenance. Absolutely not. And this uh, this happens frequently. And uh, another thing that happens frequently is that an owner has an automatic debit on their account, but when the new management company comes in, that information changes. And so they don't change the information. So therefore the money isn't withdrawn out of their account. And then, you know, three months down the road, they get a letter saying that they're delinquent. They always get upset and inevitably we're able to provide them with a copy of the communication that was sent to them prior to the management change with the new ACH form and the request that they fill it out. Or I always, you know, think in my head, although I don't often say it, you know, how did you not notice that the money wasn't coming out of your bank account? Because (laughs) I know that I notice when my payment comes out of my bank account, but you know, it's not, it's not a defense. Sometimes there are breakdowns in communication. And typically when that happens, again, these owners are generally quick to contact you and let you know what happened. And if it happens at the beginning of the case, meaning when we send that first letter, it's very easy to resolve. Sometimes it means the association you know, can't collect the fees that you had to charge because they did mess it up. But most of the time, it simply means that you get the matter resolved and everyone moves forward with the correct amount of payments. 
Sure. And listen, sometimes there's an illness involved or some sort of trauma or even somebody's been deployed. You know, we get that. Um, Right. So I understand that. So, Joy, what's the average timeline these days for an uncontested foreclosure? How long does it take start to finish? Owner's not not trying to fight it, hasn't hired counsel. What are, what's the association looking at? So the first thing um, I'd bring up is that pre-suit, those pre-suit notifications that we discussed, because those are important to build into the timeline. Right now, you're looking at 120 days before you can even file the foreclosure. And that's assuming that you literally send out the next letter on the expiration date of the prior letter. So initially you're looking at 120 days before you can file a foreclosure. Once you file the foreclosure, it likely takes between six and eight months to complete that foreclosure. You've got certain court timeframes that you can't control service of process issues. You know, you have to make sure everyone's served properly. Sometimes you find that you, especially when someone is deceased, you find that there are additional heirs that need to be named as defendants. And then once everyone's served, you have to go through the process of defaulting them. And then there have been some recent changes to the summary judgment rule that lengthen the amount of time between when you file a motion for summary judgment and when the hearing can actually take place. And then once the hearing takes place and you receive a final judgment, then you have a sale date that's either at the minimum 30 days after the final judgment is entered, but sometimes can be longer than that, depending on which county you're in and what the available sale dates are. So I'm including all of that in that time frame, that six to eight month time frame, once you actually file the foreclosure complaint. I'm listening to your timeline and I'm thinking back to my opening question to you about the other legislative changes that are going to add a number of significant cost increases to associations' budgets. And I'm wondering if these Florida legislators speak to each other. Because on the one hand, we know there's going to be significant budgetary increases coming, and it has already happened in terms of maintenance and repair projects, professional reserve studies. We're in the midst of a property insurance crisis in Florida. I had Andrea Northrup on um, recently talking about it. And as you know, some of our clients have gotten hit with 11th hour, 70% premium increases. So we know that it's getting costlier and costlier to operate and administer these communities. And on the other hand, we've seen legislation over the last decade where our Florida legislators are making it harder to actually pursue an expedited foreclosure. And I understand that in some cases they want to make sure that there aren't mistakes being made, but how do these two things actually coexist? They do seem pretty contradictory, and especially some of the recent changes that went into effect last year. I think the best way that associations can manage these changes is to make sure that they have a good understanding of the requirements for proceeding with the collections action. It's not so much that it's, it is more onerous, but it doesn't have to be as long as you have the process in place and you understand what's required. Letting our clients know and making tools available to them that will allow them to quickly move forward on a collections action, I think is what's most important. Making sure they're educated as to what those requirements are. Since this new statute went into effect requiring that notice of late assessment and giving the owners 30 days to pay, 
I've had so many clients who had to redo those notices. They thought they were right the first time, but then they had to redo them. And so you're adding 60 to 90 to 120 days and they're continuing to lose assessments. So it's very frustrating for them. And I understand that. And my biggest goal has been to let clients know that we're here for them. We can even preview those notices before you send them out let you know what it is that you might be missing or what it is that you can do. And and I'm also looking at it every time that I get a file in my office, I'm looking at it from the perspective of we're going to have to litigate this file. So as a litigator, you want to make sure that all your ducks are lined up in a row. So that way, when you do get to litigation, and hopefully you don't have to, but that there's going to be nothing that someone can come back and say, oh, from the very beginning, this happened and it's a fatal error. So I think it's important for associations to understand that because they're frustrated when we tell them that that something has to be redone. But it's truly because we want to make sure that they don't get so far down the road that there's no way to fix what it is that's been done incorrectly. So I think the key for clients, the legislature does what the legislature does. And we can do all we can to make sure that the laws that are passed make sense. But once those laws go into effect, whether they make sense or not, we have to help the client make sense of them. And we have to make sure that they're educated as to what needs to happen next. And offering them those tools is what I've really tried to do in the last uh, year to make sure that they can still proceed in a very timely manner. And you know, a lot of clients were sending out notices to owners that their account was delinquent. They were already doing that. Um, and so a lot of clients have been able to take those notices and change them to conform to what the statute requires. So it hasn't necessarily required them to do a lot of extra work. It's just that maybe now they're not sending out three notices to an owner before they send the file to us. They're just sending one and it's allowing them to proceed um, in a safer manner. So they've actually consolidated. I can only hope that our Florida legislator, somebody's listening to this because some of the bills that were proposed that did not pass, but we expect to pass soon, required that emergency repairs be made within six months after the engineer identified those repairs or the association could be potentially fined thousands of dollars per day. Again, so think about the timeline you just laid out. If you need to get money in the door immediately to make these emergency repairs, you might not be able to do it depending on how many people are delinquent in the community based on the other laws that were previously passed that spread out this timeline where we're looking at, you know, many, many months, well beyond six months to get the money in. So hopefully when they revisit these safety bills, they're going to take another look at what they've done with regard to collections. And perhaps they carve out an exception for collections when you're collecting assessments to pay for emergency repairs. Sure. And, you know, the other part of that is just the work that goes into, let's assume that you have an engineer who's identified a problem and you don't have the funds to pay for it. You know, it might not be, you may have fully funded reserves, but they may not cover whatever that emergency repair is. You have to go through a process of adopting a special assessment. And typically special assessments, depending on what kind of community you're in, they're spread out over a number of years if they're a large special assessment. So it's very difficult to meet some of those requirements if you have to pass a large special assessment. It's made even more difficult, like you're saying, by the collections timelines that we're talking about. And it's a reason why clients really need to stay on top of their collection files because the longer you let something go in a delinquency, the harder it is to recover those funds. It's much easier for an owner to catch up 
when they owe less money than when they owe thousands and thousands of dollars for a couple of years. It's much more difficult. Big balances, big problems, small balances, smaller problems. Exactly. So sometimes it's the bank that's foreclosing. The owner is paying the association fees, but not paying the bank. Should the association care? Should they pay an attorney like you to monitor a lender's foreclosure action? I always recommend that we file an answer and affirmative defenses to a bank foreclosure because you don't know whether or not that owner is going to become delinquent during the course of the bank foreclosure. And you want to be able to stay active in the case, meaning not have a default entered against the association in order to have the best opportunity to perhaps move that case forward if it stalls. So, you know, we saw a lot of bank foreclosures in 2008, 2009 that were taking five, six, seven years to complete. It was insanity. And associations were bleeding assessments, you know, and the bank's lien is superior to the associations. So they didn't want to go through a process of foreclosing and then have the bank take title from them. But we now have strategies for moving bank cases forward. And your best shot at doing that is if you have filed an answer and affirmative defenses so you can really actively monitor that case. It doesn't cost that much to do that sort of um, activity. And again, if the owner's paying you, there's no reason why you would do more than just file the answer and affirmative defenses. But if the owner does become delinquent, then you have the ability to push that case forward so you can get it to the end faster. That's the key because the transfer of title is what will determine who is responsible for the ongoing assessments that are coming due, as well as how much of those past due assessments that you're going to recover. So, you know, we always recommend that clients file an answer and affirmative defenses. So that way you can, you know, be sure to be involved in the case if necessary. You mentioned the recession and and during the recession, we did see some owners engaging in what's called a strategic default. So their homes were worth less than what their mortgages were. So they just decided, I'm going to stop paying. I'm going to walk away. Obviously, the situation is different these days. The properties, as you said earlier, have quite a bit of equity in them. But how do you know if you're dealing with a strategic default where somebody's just not paying because they haven't prioritized the association's assessments? And what do you do about a strategic default? you approach it any differently? You don't approach it differently, honestly. I think that one of the biggest things that I've told clients and and relayed to them is that they need to be on top of their delinquencies. You don't know from the beginning whether or not it's a strategic default, but you do know whether an account is 30 or 60 or 90 days overdue. And I think that the key is starting collections early. And I think at that point, you'll find out whether it's a strategic default. We have cases where you have an owner who goes into delinquency and collections multiple times times because they're just not prioritizing the association's assessments. They will pay before they lose title to the property. But you know, that's kind of the same thing as a strategic default. They're basically just waiting until they're prioritizing their bills, let's say. Then you have other situations where maybe you have an investor who's purchased a property and they are unable to maintain the payments or they've decided it's not worth it anymore. And so that they walk away, you know, and whether it's that scenario, whether it's an owner who is waiting until the last minute to pay, or whether it's an owner who's truly unable to pay the assessment, I think the association initial behavior should certainly be the same, whatever the reason is for the non-payment. When you get into the actual collections and foreclosure part of it, I think that 
it's important that you treat, you know, you might want to treat different situations differently. If you have an owner who truly does want to pay, but is having difficulty, you know, then working out a payment plan with them and maybe being a little understanding of that is a good idea. If on the other hand, it's an investor or someone who has had multiple delinquencies and, you know, they just tend to pay at the very end, then I think that can be a little more aggressive from that perspective. But the reality is, is that regardless of the reason for non-payment, if you allow delinquencies to multiply in your building without being diligent about proceeding, then you're going to have more owners that decide not to pay their bills. That's just how it works. We've seen it time and time again. You have clients that have a large amount of delinquencies and they clean them up. Owners suddenly are always on time because they know if they're not or they know if they fall too far behind, the association is going to proceed. So it's it's really a matter of what owners see happening in their community. And I think really the key to why you need to proceed in an expeditious manner when you have delinquencies. I mean, most boards understand that the goal is just to get paid, to collect the the assessments. Again, to keep the community running, to pay those insurance premiums, to pay the landscaper, to maintain the building and the grounds. Most boards understand that the goal is not to be punitive with your neighbors. You live with these people. It's just to make sure that everybody's paying their fair share towards the services. You mentioned payment plans. What would be the key components of, of a payment plan? So some associations have policies where they want every payment plan to fit a specific parameter. For example, if an owner's delinquent and they want to enter into a payment plan, they require a 50% down payment and then the remainder within six months. You have other associations that are willing to work a little bit more with owners in terms of letting payment plans stretch out for a year, two years, three years. It just depends on your community. And a lot of it also depends on how much the person owes. I typically recommend for a payment plan that the association keep it at maybe 24 months at the maximum. If it's a lot less, meaning the money that is owed is a lot less and it should be paid off earlier than that, and that's different. But sometimes owners get into a really bad situation where they owe thousands of dollars and it's very difficult to come current and also stay current on the ongoing assessments. It's always important for associations to consider payment plans because like you mentioned, the key is that you're getting the money. Getting the money is what's important. And so even if you're concerned about someone defaulting, my position is that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. So if you recover some of the money, but not all of it before an owner defaults, you've still recovered some of the money and then you can proceed with your other options. The other thing that is important to consider is where you're at in the collections or foreclosure action. So if you're in the collection stage and you haven't filed a lawsuit, then you can't have the same enforcement mechanisms for that payment plan that you would if you filed the litigation. So if you're in the pre-suit portion of the action, the owner essentially signs a letter, a payment plan agreeing to follow a certain payment schedule. If they default on that, then you would be able to proceed with the foreclosure. If you're already in the middle of a foreclosure, you actually can have the owner sign a stipulation for settlement that details the payment plan. And it essentially provides that if they default, that you're free to proceed with a motion for summary judgment, get a final judgment and, you know, sell the property. They've essentially- So you're not starting, you're not back at the starting gate. Exactly. Exactly. They've essentially waived all of their defenses because they agreed, you know, and it's laid out in that stipulation to how much money that they owed. If you've waived any amount, 
amounts. Those amounts come back into play due to their default and you can proceed. So a lot of clients who have um, owners who they're very frustrated with because they're very delinquent, we've had to file a foreclosure lawsuit. You know, my recommendation, again, always sign a settlement agreement that's going to get you some money. And if they default, don't worry, you're protected. You're actually in a better situation sometimes because that owner might've raised defenses that would cause the case to be more heavily litigated. And if you enter into a settlement, they can no longer raise those defenses. So there are some really good reasons why you would want to do that. But again, the key is always, you know, remembering that you want money, not the property. Like that's typically your, your main goal. You know, you want, you you want the money, right? The associations don't want to wind up owning all these units. This is why it's important that managers and or board members don't attempt to draft these payment plans themselves. You really need your attorney to draft this plan. It's a legal document and it needs to have enforceable legal consequences if the debtor defaults. Exactly. And that's pretty much true of any settlement agreement. There's typically a line in most agreements that if the court finds any part of it to be unenforceable, that the rest of it remains. But with respect to payment plans, the association needs to remember that the debt that is owed is secured by the property. Okay. So the owner is personally liable for the amounts that are owed but the debt is really secured by the property. So if you have a situation where an owner dies in the middle of a payment plan, okay, the heirs, while they're not personally responsible because that wasn't their debt, they are going to have to pay those amounts under the settlement plan if they want to keep the property and to keep the foreclosure from proceeding. And that's always the case. We have a lot of times when we have lawsuits against someone who is deceased and we name the estate, we have heirs that file answers that they're not responsible for the debt. And we're not trying to hold them responsible. We're simply trying to put them on notice that if the debt is not paid, then their interest is going to be extinguished and we are going to get the unit. That makes sense. Exactly. So that's really what, um, so that, you know, legal document, there's also other things that can happen during the course of the payment plan. If an owner decides to start renting out their unit while they're in a payment plan, the association can have the option of going after the tenant for the rent because that's a change in circumstances for that unit. They're getting money, you know, for the unit and yet they're making the association wait for their payment. So there are a lot of things that need to be considered and to make sure that you can proceed if someone defaults or if there's a change in circumstances. Can interest and late fees be waived as a negotiation tool? Yes, they can be waived. And typically that is one of the best negotiation tools to settle an account. The only concern that I have and that I make sure my clients know is that if you are willing to waive interest and late fees for one owner, then you need to do the same for other owners who might be in a similar situation. It doesn't mean you proactively have to waive interest and late fees for delinquent owners across the board. It just means that if you have one owner that you've entered into a a payment plan or a settlement with, and as part of that, you waived interest and late fees, if you have another owner who comes to you in the same situation and asks that you waive interest and late fees and enter into a settlement agreement, you really need to do that because you need to treat all of your owners the same. Otherwise, you might be facing one of those selective enforcement defenses that I talked about earlier. You know, consistency helps associations when dealing with their owners because owners know what to expect. Sometimes, you know, they'll have a policy. Honestly, though, if you have a person who's been in multiple delinquencies, they may have a a policy of not 
waiving interest and late fees for that owner. That's a different situation than when someone falls behind for the first time and you know they want to settle the account. You don't always have to waive interest and late fees. In fact, you, you don't ever have to waive interest and late fees if you don't want to. But what I always encourage um, you know, the client to think about is that interest and late fees are penalties. They're not actually money that was going to go towards your association's upkeep if the owner paid. So to me, the important part is recovering the principal amount that you're owed plus whatever costs or attorney's fees you might've had to pay to collect that. Those are the keys that you want to think about. Do you ever pursue a deficiency judgment against an owner? Let's say there there was not sufficient equity in, in the property. Is a deficiency judgment something that's on the table? It is on the table. Uh, most associations, if they do that, they'll do so in a scenario where the bank has foreclosed and the association is still owed money. The things that you want to look at before you decide to do so is whether or not that owner actually has assets against which you might be able to collect that deficiency or money judgment. If you have an owner who is destitute, it makes no sense for you to pursue a money judgment when you're not going to be able to collect it. But if you have an owner who you know owns other properties... Or who, sitting with a big boat. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> so if you know that they have other assets that could be levied, then yes, you want to proceed. I recently have been successful in getting a money judgment against a prior owner and then levying it against one of their other properties that they owned via a sheriff's sale. You can get very creative in these things and making sure that the association has as much recovery as possible. But most of the time, the reality is the person who wasn't paying you doesn't have any other assets against which to collect doesn't mean that you shouldn't ask your attorney to run an asset search, which is very helpful in determining whether there's any other, let's say, publicly recorded assets such as boats, cars, other properties that are located in the state that can be um, collected against. But you don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole before making a determination as to whether or not that person might be collectible. Over the years, particularly in Florida, we've seen these collection agencies or creative debt collection companies crop up. And we know, look, I know from experience that boards are often time strapped. So when they're looking to figure out which CPA to hire, or which attorney to hire, which engineer, it can be difficult for them to figure this out. What's the difference if a board is trying to decide, do we go with a collection agency or do we go with a law firm? I have seen so many associations bitterly regret the decisions that they have made in this respect and have helped them clean up long lingering delinquencies because of the choices that they made when they felt that they were time strapped or cash poor. My first piece of advice is that you get what you pay for. And that doesn't mean you have to pay out the nose, okay? It just means that when you are looking at these cases, earlier I mentioned that when I get a case in the office, I'm looking at it as if it's going to be a lawsuit and we're going to go to litigation. These collections agencies can't litigate cases. They can't file cases. Instead, they at best can be affiliated with a law firm who might do those things. And that would be after months of them trying to collect the amounts from the owners themselves. Many times these collections agencies will 
entice associations to sign with them by saying that they don't have to pay for any of the amounts that they owe, meaning they don't have to pay for the services rendered that will just collect the interest and the late fees from your owners. That winds up being a massive amount of money because of the fact that these collection agencies often don't proceed in a very efficient and timely manner. I never recommend an association use a collections agency. I think that you need to realize that collections and foreclosure is a process that should be done by an attorney. If there are reasons why you don't necessarily um, have the funds to pay immediately for the work that needs to be done, many law firms will offer deferred billing arrangements that are going to get you a better result than what you would get if you first try to go through a collections agency. They also require you to sign agreements with them that any payments that you receive will be sent to them rather than handled by the association so that way they can take their money out first. That's not how most law firms operate, depending on the agreement that you have with them. And what I find is that owners typically don't have the best experience with dealing with collections agencies, and they have a better experience dealing with the law firm. And so it's not just the association board that you need to think about. The board needs to be thinking about their members. They need to be thinking about how can we bring this member back into good standing in the community in terms of their financial account. And from what I've seen, and this has been you know for the last 13 years, you're going to have a much better opportunity and chance to do that with a law firm than you are with the collections agency. That's not just because I work at a law firm. It's because it's what I've seen. I've had so many associations that decided to use collections agencies and you know during the recession who are now still cleaning up those files and asking for help in getting those files to completion. Well, I, I think, think I think your point though is so important because for a collection agency, they don't know these people. So the debt it's to, and and I've seen them load them up with exorbitant fees and costs for a law firm that's handling both corporate representation and the collection part of the equation. Today's debtor may be tomorrow's association president, you know, depending on why that person was, you know, found himself or herself in a delinquent situation. So it's an ongoing, again, it's a living together relationship. I don't, again, most boards don't want to really crush their owners with fees and costs. They just want to get the assessment paid. Correct. When these collection agencies sign that agreement with you, you no longer have the option of waiving interest in late fees as a negotiation tool. So you're taking one of your biggest negotiation tools off of the table because that collection agency is going to require payment even if you would prefer to waive those amounts. So that's that's a really good point. In addition, I, I do find that a lot of times these collection agencies will attempt to recover amounts that are no longer recoverable. They might be outside of the five-year statute of limitations that were governed by when it comes to collection of a debt and they're calculating interest on those amounts amounts when those amounts may no longer be recoverable. So in the long run, it really doesn't benefit either the association, you know, the board and and the actual finances of the association. And it certainly doesn't benefit your members. I think that a, a client just needs to understand when you're dealing with legal documents and legal processes, you're typically always better going with someone who is able to handle that entire process not just a part of it, because, you know, that's another thing about having the department that I have and that we have here at the firm is that we truly look at 
the file from beginning to end. We don't hand it off to someone else in the middle of the process. That is going to open up a lot of opportunity for mistakes and miscommunications. You know, we are going to make sure that file is handled from beginning to end in the same way that your major lawsuit over a million dollars would be handled. The attention to detail and making sure that the client is taken care of and that you're being respectful and professional with the owners and listening to their concerns is done. And I think that's what's really key in this practice is that you're here to make sure that everyone is as satisfied as they can be from the perspective of what you're doing. And it's a difficult process, which is a great segue into my question about how how do you and your team handle the stress? I mean, there's been an increased emphasis on mental health in the last few years. Here at Becker, we have a mental health committee. You and I just attended a firm retreat where one of our keynote speakers talked about mental health issues. I can't think of a more stressful practice other than perhaps family law where you're dealing with foreclosing on people's homes and it has to be stressful. How do, how do you handle it? It is stressful. And I think that not looking at it on a personal level, honestly, is truly the only way to deal with it. I think that things that help me the most are understanding that a lot of these decisions are solely based on the healthy financial well-being of a community. And I do at times um, have conversations with clients as to whether or not I think they're being unreasonable when it comes to specific owners. I also have the difficult task of telling owners that, you know, the association is allowed to do what it's doing. And there are reasons why we're doing what, you know, the association has asked us to do. But for me, again, it's, it's about treating everyone with dignity and with respect, no matter what their situation is. You're always going to have situations where you wish it was different for the owner that you might be foreclosing on. There are also plenty of times where the owner that you're foreclosing on has every means of paying the assessments, but for some reason they aren't. So there are a lot of different situations. But when you are faced with a, a challenge of dealing with an owner who's truly in a very bad situation and you have to proceed with foreclosing and doing your job, I think that treating everyone with dignity is key to going home at the end of the day and being okay with what you had to do. I actually have had owners who are in terrible fights with the association thank me for the way that I talked to them and listened to them and tried to work with them. And in situations where we're successful in working out an agreement and, and managing it, they're very happy with the results. To me, that makes what I do worth it. Also remembering that there's this one person that you might have an adversarial relationship with, but there are many other owners in that community that also are making a life there and they are paying their fair share. And sometimes it's just not the right situation for the person that you are foreclosing on or having to deal with from a delinquency standpoint. All of those things are very helpful. And also just taking a step away if you need to, coming back to it when you're better able to deal with it. But I, I just truly think that, you know, keeping all of those things in mind has been what's enabled me to move forward in my practice and make sure that I'm I'm mentally healthy at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think is the biggest mistake that association boards make when it comes to collecting assessments? Not having a handle on the financial health of their association, not paying attention to the fact that delinquencies are rising, not paying attention to how those collections are going. 
So I think that it's extremely important to have a collections policy in place, almost an automatic type of process. And you can make the decision yourself, whether it's 30, 60, 90 days delinquent, there's a um, process that's triggered to start the collections process so it doesn't get out of hand. But I do think that's the biggest mistake because a lot of associations, they don't realize it's a problem until it's a huge problem, or they allow their owners to get too far behind. And then it makes it very difficult for them to catch up. And this happens in communities where the assessments are not large. Okay. So if the larger your assessment is on a monthly or quarterly basis, the more unlikely it is to happen in your community, meaning that you're not paying attention because those numbers are larger. But if you don't have a large monthly or quarterly, and sometimes even annual assessment, then you might not be paying attention to an owner who's two, three years behind. And that starts to really affect the financial health of your community. And you're also getting into a situation where you might not be able to pursue and demand all of the amounts that are owed. And so I think that's the biggest mistake that associations make is just not being in touch and in tune with the financial health of their community and not having a collections policy in place that they follow to make sure they don't get into a bind. Well, I've kept you so much longer than I than I told you I would keep you, but you were giving out so much great information. Last question. Do you think you'll ever see the day when somebody tries to pay an assessment with crypto? Oh, my. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, at this point, we're still telling associations that they can't require credit cards. They might have to take <laughs> cash or checks. So, but um, I can I could foresee that happening, I guess. I think we'd have to have a little bit more of a, of a standardized way of accepting those kinds of payments before it might become an issue. But I don't know. I might, I might actually advise a client to accept <laughs> payment in crypto, given the value that it seems to be able to soar up to. Although, of course, you've had your corresponding lows. So right, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, that this is what keeps our jobs interesting. Just when we think we've seen everything, you mark my words, somebody will try to pay with crypto. Joy, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I'm really grateful to be on. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform or visit take it to the board.com for more ways to connect. 